Welcome to the Seahawks Forever podcast, hosted by longtime Northwest sports journalist Dan Viennes. News, reaction, and opinion. In-depth analysis on everything Seahawks. And now, here's your host, Dan Viennes. Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's the Seahawks Forever podcast. I'm Dan. Uh, coming up on today's show, Griffin Sturgeon of the Seattle Overload podcast will join me again. We're going to talk about how well the Seahawks' new linemen fit what they want and need to do on both sides of the ball this year. We're going to actually talk some offense as well. Uh, and we're going to dive into the question of just which scheme are the Seahawks running on defense after all. Hopefully we'll get to dissect that once and for all. But first... Uh, if you like the content you're getting from the show, please like the video and subscribe to the channel at the YouTube icon that you see over there in the corner. Coming up on a thousand subscriptions, and that's a big goal, so I appreciate your support there. Before I bring Griffin in, a couple of newsy things to get to today. Uh, first, today was the, the first of nine voluntary minicamp workouts with the full squad. Now, we had the rookie minicamp last week. They joined the veterans today. A uh, couple of items, Jamal Adams, Jordan Brooks, not present as expected. They were both in Texas continuing to rehab from their injuries. Interestingly enough, though, Brian Monet was on hand, not taking part in drills, coming off the ACL injury. There's some question about how severe that injury was, but uh, I don't know. I, I consider that good news that he was on hand uh, for workouts today. A couple of surprising absences that we don't have details on yet. Newly signed defensive end Mario Edwards. And rookie sensation Tariq Woolen were not on the field. No reports as to why. Remember, this is voluntary. This minicamp, Pete Carroll did not speak to the media today, so we did not uh, get any more details on that. And a couple of new signings to report. Interestingly enough, cornerback Artie Burns is back. The former Steelers first-round pick was on the Seahawks roster all last year but played in only 16 snaps. Just uh, camp depth there, I would imagine. He's familiar with the scheme. Uh Probably just a veteran presence there for the young guys. And the team added yet another young defensive lineman today. Former Tennessee defensive tackle Latrell Bumpfus was on hand. The 6'3", 290-pounder, described as a nose tackle, played in 55 games over his career for the Volunteers. Uh, some other big news. Bobby Wagner says he's gotten a look at the team's new throwback uniform set to debut this year and officially describes them as fire. And one other thing. Uh, I found this interesting, and I'll dive into this on a later show. Uh, the NFL today approved a rule allowing each team to have a third emergency quarterback available on game days. Interesting the way they structured this rule. Uh, again, I will address that uh, coming up on a show in the near future. But today, we're going to talk some scheme fits, and we're going to talk some uh, rookie lineman with Griffin Sturgeon. Welcome back to the show, Griffin. How you doing, man? Good. Thanks for having me. Glad to be back. Always. Uh, it's been uh, it's been an, uh, a tumultuous, adventurous month with the draft. You and I spoke before the draft. We talked about some guys you thought would fit. Um, I think we even talked about Mike Morris at one point, or I may have asked your thoughts on him. Um, but, but first, I want to start kind of with the big picture, and then we'll narrow in from there and talk some more specifics. Um, sure. I wanted to hit this piece of audio. Clint Hurt was on Seattle Sports 710. Um, with Michael Bumpus and Stacy Ross last week. And he was asked specifically, the big question last offseason, well, the, the big news last offseason was Seahawks were changing from a 4-3 to a 3-4 on defense. And obviously the results were mixed last year. Some real struggles at times, especially on, uh, on run defense, although the, the coverage was pretty solid for the most part. 
And then the news or, or the storyline this offseason seems more to be what the hell are they going to run? Is it a 3 4? Is it a 4 3? Is it a hybrid? Pete Carroll said some things. They've sort of backed off some of those statements. This is what Clint Hurt had to say on the subject uh, recently. Is the plan to have a 3 4 again this year? Uh, I mean, really, a 3 4 4. I know it's more one, complicated than that. It's, it's, it's really one and the same. Yeah. If I say, you're, okay, you're a 4 3 team and you play a lot of underfront, yeah. guess what? That's what we're in like 95% of the time. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that's why I always look like, really, it's more, it, it's being made yeah. to be more than what it is. Is it being made to be more than what it is, or are they backing off some of those changes and reverting more to what they used to do? What's going on here? So, so, so much of it is <clears throat> is semantics, right? But I think um, like it's it's hard to where to start with this conversation because the way I see it is that they made this switch to three four in, in twenty twenty three years ago, and Pete Carroll also mentioned, mm. I think on seven ten, he said um, to, uh, to to Brock and Mike uh, Salk, he said um, we we started to live in this bear world that Brock Heward brought up three years ago. He said, um, now he didn't bring with that any like numbers, he didn't get specific with it, but I think some of it is that like bear can be run in the fourth with four, three personnel or three, four personnel, or it can be ran out of a four, three look or three, four look. But most of the time it's three, four. And when we talk three, four in the, like the modern NFL right now, we're really talking about bear fronts where you've got two, three techniques and then a zero technique nose tackle flanked by two outside linebackers. So, but in 2020, when you have Carlos Dunlap, even though he's technically standing up, I think, you know, he's 6'6", 290. You just kind of think 4'3", right? Um, but so from the from the the, the, um, the sideline angle, if you take their, and this kind of gets into what Clint is saying, if you take their classic 4'3 under or 4'3 over fronts, they've got five guys on the line of scrimmage, right? Mm-hmm. So if you take that front, especially if you're just looking from the sideline, if you simply have the Leo stand up and kick the one technique in to a zero technique, you have a 3-4 bear or a three, four tight front or combination. So I think, and as we know, the common, the classic peak quote is this goes back decades, right? Like I run a four, three with three, four uh, personnel and or three, right. four principles. It's because what they were doing is already, there's so much overlap and similarity that the switch kind of went under the radar in 2020 because fundamentally, like with Clint is saying, it's really not that big of a deal. It's the their, their principles were already so crosswired with the three, four t- to begin with. It's just when you go into pure bear space where you kick that one technique into a two gapping nose tackle, you're just kind of leaning further into it. But I think the commentary there is that Pete Carroll's always embraced what the three, four can do for you um, up front. And really that principle is you want 300 pounders in the B gaps and you don't want them to be able to make it easy on them. You want to dictate <clears throat> what their, uh, what their run menu can be basically to the offense. So, I think that's kind of, um, I think that's why there, there's so much like, well, uh, they, they promoted Clint Hurt. He's from the Fangio defense. He said three, four. So now we're kind of this three, four world, but really just speaking to their, their base defense, like when they're in base personnel with, with, uh, you know, four, four defensive backs, um, they're, they're, um, it's, it's kind of when they're in base personnel, they're still a three, four team. Like, there's very little difference between what they did under Clint Hurt in base personnel this past year than they did the two previous seasons of Ken Norton Jr. Um, where things got different last year was within their nickel package. And I think that's really where we can pinpoint and identify not only what was indeed different, but also what went wrong. 
Um, so they have so a three four team. The any three four team is going to have two main nickel packages. They're going to have their the three the the nickel version of the three four the three three five, and then there where you still have three big interior bodies on the line of scrimmage, and then you drop one of your off ball linebackers for for a nickel back, while still keeping your two big outside linebackers on the line of scrimmage, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have your whether the two four five or the four two five, which really looks and operates like the nickel version of a four three. So it looks like you know, like a four two five is just a four three, but you're swapping your SAM for your nickel, right? Okay. And then and then the two four five is really the same thing. You just you're calling the two edges outside linebackers, even if they're standing up, they're functioning like a defensive end. They don't drop. They're rushing, right? So what happened last year with Clint Hurt is that he took their nickel snaps and they cut their three three five in half. And then they replaced those snaps with the two four five. And that was all to kind of embrace the idea of we're going to be aggressive. We're not going to drop our edges as much because remember that was the big complaint, right? Yeah. Ironically, that complaint came. You can only drop your edges if you're running a three four. Like that's like the the the, the subtext behind the complaints by <laughs> Ken Norton Jr. Okay. is that they're running a three four. So Clint Hurd is saying, all right, we're going to do less of that when it's time to when it's time to rush the passer. We want our edges. We want them to get going upfield. And that's great when they when they when they present eleven personnel, first and ten shotgun or second and five, whatever. That's great because you're you're saying we have a two deep two deep safeties. We're going to defend the sidelines. We're going to defend deep, and we're going to be able to rush the passer with four, so that our second level isn't having to cover forever. They can rally to the checkdown because that was their problem under Ken Norton Jr. They defended the second level really well, the third level really well, but they could not tackle the running back because they were too distanced from him, like geometrically. Hmm. So they needed a pass rush. So they said, all right. We can't rush the passer in three, 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 five. So we need to use the two, four, five. Um, but then the problem is, so yeah, there were clear benefits in their 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 pass defense improved in nickel even more with the two, four, five. They became a little bit more of a three dimensional pass defense. But then the run defense within that sample regressed enough to bring down the entire picture. Um, so it's it's a little bit like you're you're playing whack a mole. So really, this year, I don't think anything like fundamentally cha- like so. Going from Ken Norton Jr. to Clint Hurt, it's they didn't really do anything. They didn't work out of a different playbook so much as they spent more and less time within the packages that were already in the playbook. So it's really how do we apply what we already have differently? And philosophically, Clint Hurt was I want to be aggressive up front. And there are trade-offs. So I think, you know, we'll we'll get into the players, right? But I think his his task is as a coordinator is how do I balance this? How do I still stay balanced against the run? Does that mean on second and four I trot out the two four five, or do I trot out the three three five if they're an eleven? Do I save the two four five for second and long, third and long, first mm-hmm. and ten? I, do I still defend the run? Yeah. And then you just play that that balancing act throughout the season. Is that kind of what ta- Carol was talking about too? Because he had a comment last week or the week before about how. The problems against the run, I thought this was an interesting comment. He said the problems against the run weren't necessarily with what was happening up front. It was it was changes we were making in how we cover. Did you catch those comments from him? Yeah, yeah. So so there there is an there is another piece to this because I mean, I I'd have to really go back and look at how they tried to defend the run out of their what what was a four two five under Ken Norton Jr. to see how they coached the linebackers. Um, and, and the second level fitters, because one of the safeties is a primary run defender. Like he's not just like a rally and help guy. Like he actually has, like you have a gap. Um, so I'd have to go back and like compare and contrast how the, how they, how they did it. But, um, 
is when you spend that much time in the two, four, five world, and I think it can't be underemphasized how many snaps they spend in this in situations where the offense will still run the ball. Like if an offense isn't under center, if they're an 11 personnel, but they're still under center, they're still running the ball two thirds of the time Hmm. on first and 10, even if they're an 11. So they're basically saying, well, if we go into 11, they're going to match with this. But then if we go into under center and run it, we'll get five and a half yards per carry, which is what they did. Yeah. So like five and a half, if you can generate five and a half yards per carry, that's you're going to keep doing that because that's actually efficient. If you don't defend the run like it matters, then it will like it. If you defend the run like it doesn't matter, statistically, it will start to matter. That's like the league wide numbers reflect a league that is still defending the run. If you defend the run on first and 10, like it's third and long, then the numbers will, you know, start to add up. So um, it's uh, I, I. I, th- I think like regardless of what Pete says and what the coaching staff says, like, yeah, the, the, the coaching could have been better. The players could have performed better. But the way I see it is if you look at their numbers in each respective front, which uh, sports info solutions kind of affords that ability to do, to do that. You can like isolate like what their performance is with how many guys in the box, et cetera. If you just rattled off like fronts, A, B, C, and D and looked at their numbers in 2021 when collectively they had a top 10 run defense Mm -hmm. and look at their numbers in 2022, collectively bottom five, their numbers in each front are pretty much the same. The only difference is they're spending more time in the fronts. They don't defend the run in more or well. So Mm -hmm. to me, I don't see it as are they really performing below what should be expected as so much as are they just using aspects of their defense uh, uh, suboptimally. It's like taking a uh, a hitter in baseball who has certain numbers against lefties and certain numbers against righties, and then you only play him against the type of ha- uh, type of pitcher that he does poorly against. And it's like, well, did he intrinsically regress, or is it contextual? Um, so I think that's kind of where, where where they go with it. If if they were to scheme identically to how they did last year with the players they have now, I think they would get even worse. Uh, front to front. However, if they scheme like they did in 2021, I think their numbers collectively can be better than they were in 2022. So personally, I really feel like scheme was doing the heavy lifting in 2021 and vice versa, or um, on the flip side, doing the opposite in 2022. That's kind of how I view it. Um, But, you know, they still had decisions they had to make at at D-line. You know, they had to get cheaper, younger. Um, They had to pay for Draymond Jones. Like there's a bigger picture at play here. Um, but yeah, it's, it's ultimately, it's hard to nail down exactly what Pete means unless you can back him to a corner and like have him really hash it out. But beyond that, it's, you know, it's kind of how I see it. It's funny, just, uh, about a second before you brought up the baseball analogy, that's where my head went to. I was thinking about pitcher versus hitter and, and how sometimes, sometimes you just play those numbers wrong. Um, so, so let's talk about this then as we get into the discussion of personnel, um, and you talk about how they went out and paid Dre Jones, something they haven't done before, really going out in the free agent market and paying significant money for a, a top dollar, top tier, young, in his prime free agent. With all the talk about how they struggled on run defense last year and how that needs to be fixed, they go out and spend money on a guy who's primarily known for getting to the passer. But you're on record as saying, um, and I think we might have talked about this the last time you were on the show, that your belief is, you know, the common conception of last year is bad scheme fit for the players that we had. Puna was playing out of position. Shelby wasn't the perfect fit. 
So they flushed all those guys out and started completely fresh. You're on record, though, as saying you you didn't necessarily agree with that. and You thought it was more scheme and call based. So other and maybe I'm asking you to repeat what you just talked about a little bit. But why do you why do you think they felt the need to completely start fresh and get rid of all those guys? Um, I think part of it might have been the relationship with Puna because he was an unrestricted free agent that might have soured. Um, mm-hmm. Like you can like on a case by case basis. Because you think Puna would have fit. I, I think in the three four in the three three five he was a fit because in my view like that's what they're doing in 2020, 2021. Nobody thought Puna four was a bad run defender those years. Yeah. If you isolate his play in the three four, which was more sparse this year. I thought his play looked just as it did the previous two seasons. But when they go in the two, four, five, that's where Puna, in contrast to Shelby and Al and everyone else, were again, it was still hard on them. I do agree that he did worse than them in those contexts because even though he's like like squatty and leverage oriented, he's a really dense 300 pounds. Like 300 pounds just isn't enough mass to take on the doubles in a four-man front as opposed to a five-man front. They stay on you longer, especially when you have a, a – uh, two two deep safeties as opposed to one like this that's even if they're that extra guy in the box even if he himself isn't necessarily a good player just for the sake of discussion his presence changes the math for the offensive line and it just makes it easier like you're you're dispersing uh, responsibility essentially when there's more guys in the box so um I, I thought they were all scheme fits for their base defense um but on a case-by-case basis, like Shelby Harris had a $9 million cap hit. You save $6 million. I get it. You cut him, you save six. Puna Ford probably wasn't going to sign back here for what he signed in Buffalo. Like Pete said multiple times in like his non-normal Pete speak, like, oh, we love the guy. Like he really wanted him back. Um, like at five, he, Seattle probably valued him, I would guess, between three and five million. And Puna said, I'd only sign for that somewhere else maybe. Hmm. Um, Al Woods is the only... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Al Woods is the only true head scratcher to me because like he, he, uh, to me, like, I think he was the only guy that everyone seemed on the same page with like, okay, yeah, he fits and he's good. But I, if you were to create an argument against him, he's 36 years old, his Achilles was bothering toward the end of the season. But then, then my counter is, well, you saved 3 million for it with, by cutting him. And then, uh, Jaron Reed cost 3 million and, just in watching Jaron Reed in Green Bay, I didn't think he was that good in all contexts. Not like, oh, not just in the two, four, five, but in three, four, he's good. Like in any front the Green Bay ran, he didn't seem to do well. But you can still fashion an argument for Jaron Reed. They have history, they'll reduce his snaps, they think they can rehone his technique, et cetera. We can get him back to who he was. He's only 30. It's not like he's 32, you know, yeah. like all that can matter, right? So I, I can see it, but. Um, to me, it's just straight up Al Woods is a good player. So you cut a player and you maybe didn't use the cap savings that efficiently. Um, Quentin Jefferson makes sense probably just from a cap hit angle. I mean, he actually did have a good pressure rate. I thought he was okay in bear, the three, four stuff. Like, I'm not going to say he was actually good. Like I thought Puna and Shelby and Al were, I think he was just merely okay. But then the two, four, five, he was definitely a weak point. So I get it. And then on top of that, he and Draymond are kind of a similar skill set, and Draymond's just simply a, an upgrade. So, um, so that, that that's kind of how I see them making those decisions one by one. And and I think overall they're saying, even if let's say they did like those players as much as say like me, you know, an armchair analyst uh, uh, appreciates them. So even if they did, they're saying, okay, 
Draymond Jones, though, is a star. Like, he can be a pro bowler. Yeah. And with Al and Puna and Shelby, those guys are maybe average, mildly above average, but we've been getting veteran defensive tackles every year for relatively cheap. I mean, Al Woods is one of those guys originally, right? Yep. Relatively cheap, and we can get a threshold of play out of them on a cheaper cap hit. So it's it's them having, you know, signed Nwosu two years ago and now signing... Or, or last year rather, and now signing Draymond Jones and saying we can we can backfill in with the rotational players and we can kind of front load the talent a little bit more because that's something that's been missing on the front, right? So maybe yeah. they're just kind of recalibrating their their general rostering approach. So now that you've had a chance after the draft to absorb what they did and and take a closer look at uh, especially the two guys that are going to play on the interior defensive line. Uh, let's start with Cameron Young, the fourth rounder. Um, reports that he's up to 319, 320 now already after reporting at 305, 304 at the Combine. Uh, what are your thoughts on him and, and specifically how he fits what they need right now? Uh, I mean, yeah, I think he's a fine pick. Like he's a day three pick, right? Uh, you know, he uh, he's kind of like Tony McDaniel, a Taba Rubin caliber of player in that you're getting, you know, serviceable early down snaps. He'll eat he'll eat up 300 to 400 to 500 snaps as he goes from year one to year two to year three, you know. Um, he he kind of gives them what they need. I don't think he's amazing or anything, but he's going to be reliable and serviceable. The only question, excuse me, I have is that, um, you know, he's a rookie and you just don't necessarily know what you're getting into with rookies. We, we talked last time, like Jordan Davis is one of the best nose tackle prospects to come out in forever. And he was merely okay his yeah. first year in Philly. Yeah. So, and he's going to be good like year two, like he's going to explode probably this year. Um, but it's just, you have no idea what you're getting yourself into. And, and like the, the turnover at defensive line, they do every year. It's just so rare to get rid of literally everybody except miles adams you know so like they, they literally had six guys uh, re, re, uh getting snaps and now all of them are gone except for miles adams and brian monet who you mentioned we have no idea what his health status yeah. is if if monet was good to go i probably wouldn't be sweating because between him draymond and jaron they kind of have a floor i think um and then and then the rookies can just be rookies so you don't have to be like it all hinges on you and an undrafted free agent to play nose tackle for us um, but that said, it's, if you're going to draft a nose tackle in the fourth round, Cam Young is, you know, a totally fine pick. So, yeah, it really makes me wonder about Monet and, and that maybe he's, he's in better shape as, as far as his timeline coming back off that ACL than, than some of us thought, because it, it does seem odd, especially given the fact that this organization thinks that they're in a contention window right now and that they can challenge in the NFC West. To, to trust and to really put a rookie out there in a position that that's that's so glaringly a position of need and really count on him. I mean, he has to play. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah, it's, uh, it's, oh, go ahead. No, you finish your thought. Well, I was just going to say like Brian Monet gave them really good play, but it wasn't until his second year, right? Like his first year, he was kind of a mess in my opinion. Puna Ford, didn't really get snaps till his second year. So it's just rookie years can be anything, especially as you go further down the draft, you know? So, yeah. Um, it's, I, I mean, it's an interesting point you make about Jordan Davis. I, I think, it, and, and maybe this will be another show I'll do. If you go back over the last 10 years and you look at highly drafted interior defensive linemen, big names, guys taken in the top 10, um, a lot of them take a while to, to find their footing. It's, it's a, what, what do you think? Is it just, is it, 
purely the fact that they're just not mature enough physically to go up against NFL offensive linemen? Is that it? When you're throwing these guys out there at 21, 22 years old? Yeah, I'm sure that's part of it. Like there's the physical adjustment period. And then also you're playing more snaps than you probably did in college yeah. uh, because you know, you have the like Charles Cross, Abraham Lucas, their line of scrimmage players on the other side. Like they literally fell off a cliff this past season. They had a great rookie year, but they fell off a cliff as soon as they exceeded the amount of games they played in college. It was like week 13 when they kind of like their play was all over. They had a couple of bounce back games in there, but they kind of fell off. Right. So it's there's that. But then also I think that. Part of it is the processing speed, like the average guard and center is so much faster and quicker hmm. and so many defensive, like defensive tackles. Like, I don't know how they do it. Cause as I've tried to learn more about how, how they play and stuff, so much of it is, as uh, is a uh, processing um, and reading blocking schemes and letting like little tiny tells inform them how to play to make them look like they're playing faster than they really are. And I think that's, that's the other side of it. They have to adjust to a different game pretty much. Um, you can't just manhandle guys. You have to, you know, be able to anticipate and, and read your keys to allow you to know what to do. And I think that's probably part of it um, because, I mean, you'll get guys that look less athletic and it's like, are they really less athletic fundamentally or are they just reacting at a lesser rate because it's there's just different things happening on the field. Um, and that probably goes for all positions, right? But it kind of, it's, it's sink or swim in the line of scrimmage like immediately, right? When you come into the league. So, um, I, I think I think that's part of it. So the the main thing is they'll probably have to see how few snaps can we get away with playing each of him. And I think the other guy is probably Robert Cooper that factors in the undrafted yeah. free agent. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll see. I think I think ultimately Cam Young will be able to handle it just fine. But yeah, they're certainly throwing a bunch of bodies at it coming out of the draft. He was the only nose tackle on the roster outside of Monet, and now there's seven right. guys that are listed at nose tackle uh, that they've right. added from just about everywhere, college, uh, undrafted free agency, and even the XFL. Uh, let's talk about Mike Morris because he's he's a much different animal, much longer player, 6'6", up to 290 uh, at last check. I think they want him to get closer to 300, it sounds like. And uh, a guy that that that, um, you know, Pete keeps talking about how he's going to play inside. And I think some fans have taken that to mean nose tackle, but, but again, in those three, four principles inside can mean any of those, uh, defensive end or nose tackle, right? The three guys just, right. I think they're just trying to make that delineation that he played edge. He played outside linebacker, essentially a stand up position in Michigan. He's not going to be doing that with the Seahawks. Right. What have you seen? Um, and again, I know he's a guy you're familiar with because we talked about him a month ago. What have you seen from him that, that, uh, well, I was going to say leads you to believe that he'll be a fit, but but how do you like his fit right now? Well, so initially watching him at Michigan, I kind of assumed that he was kind of in that tweener weight bracket. Like he doesn't really fit them. Maybe he does. If he gains weight, drops weight, whatever. But as an edge rusher, I liked him a lot. Like if he was actually the 6'6", he was listed at, the way he moved on the edge like I know his combine wasn't great, but if you just talk like movement skill stuff, you just have to see, it's really impressive. Um, so then I, but then um, when they, uh, it, so then he had a few snaps where he kind of played interior a little bit and he didn't, he didn't look great. And then we found out later he played at 280. So, um, and then they draft him, they said, we're going to move him inside. So they said, okay, we want him back up to 295. And in my mind, I'm thinking this is still, this is cool because he's got movement skills and, you know, they're no stranger to taking outside rushers and putting them inside and letting them wreak havoc. Like the bigger guys, the, the, the tweener guys, they find homes for tweeners. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I was really intrigued by it, but I assume, okay, this is a projection. And then 
sure enough, I go back and, and then also there, um, I think a Matt, Matt Barry, the director of pro personnel said, um, that he played defensive tackle the year prior. So mm-hmm. it's like, Oh, okay. So he's, this is, he's not a total stranger to it. I assume this was like a total, like they're making a projection based off of this and that and putting together an argument for themselves. So, um, going back and watching, I watched a few of his 2021 games where he's playing like a three technique and bear or a four eye and what they call tight, which is kind of like the same thing really. And he's two gapping and one gapping. And he actually in one-on-ones, he actually looks the part like he's actually he comes out low. His hands are his hands are in the right spot. He's his footwork is like really mechanical, like in a good way, like he c- commits to the technique and his pad level isn't an issue on one on one blocking. When he gets doubles, uh, when guys kind of uh, uh, c- uh, combo him, he'll tend to get uprooted a little bit, but it's not in ways that you know, that isn't uncommon among six, six guys, just because yeah. one, that's where the pad level can become an issue. And then two, you're presenting so much surface area to the guy, the the second blocker, that there's just so much to latch on to a move. So yeah, he, he will get moved. But I think back to Draymond Jones at OSU, he was 275, 280 at OSU, and he got rocked off the line of scrimmage a lot. He put on weight in college or in, in Denver. Sure enough, he played for a three, four base team. And in one-on-ones, I mean, he's a good run defender, I'd say. He'll, every once in a while, a combo will blow him off the line of scrimmage, but it doesn't have to be that big of a deal if everyone else has their act together. I mean, in 2020, LJ Collier, I think, was playing average run defense. Then he mm-hmm. fell off. But he kind of got up to a level where it's like he can handle one-on-ones. Occasionally, he'd get rocked by a double or a combo, but their collective run defense was still fine. So if I guess I'm saying if, if LJ can do it, Mike probably can because I think he's a better prospect coming out. Draymond Jones is an excellent player, and he started off in a worse place than Morris as an interior run defender. Obviously, as a pass rusher coming out of OSU, Draymond was really exciting. Um, But then on that pass rush note, like Mike Morris, oddly enough, he doesn't really have any moves as an interior pass rusher, whereas he does on the outside, which is odd to me. But on the inside, like he's got a bull rush, and then he's just got pure speed too. So, I mean, he, he's a factor. And clearly they see, like, there's a potential for a legit interior pass rusher here. And if we can just get his run defense up to a serviceable level, that means you can enjoy the the, the benefits of that pass rush on early downs and not just third and long. Because that's when Michigan mostly used him. But if you squint, you can find those early down snaps with him. And he he stands up and he plays, he plays really sound technique. And I'm sure that's probably what Clint Hurt, uh, what that jumped out to him. Because it's not just, okay... Physically, he can hold up, even yeah. though he's kind of a mess. He actually plays the position. He knows what he's doing. So he's like, we'll just get him back up to 295. On that note, though, sorry, I know this is long-winded. This past year, when he did play inside, which was rare, but when he did, he did not look good. And I think that's just because uh, John Schneider mentioned, and he himself mentioned, he, he played at 280. And I think yeah. that for his height is just the threshold of being too light for his body type. So 295, what he played it in uh, his junior year, I think is a sweet spot for him because um, he can still move and affect the passer at that weight as well. I think it's going to be one of the most interesting things for me personally is to see what he looks like when the preseason comes around. It, it's it's fascinating to me that we we forget about the concept of development and projection and that guys look different and they grow and they, you know, not just get better technique-wise, but physically. Somebody posted on Twitter the other day and I thought I bookmarked it. I bookmarked it. I tried to find it again. I uh, thought I screenshotted it. Couldn't find it anywhere. But 
uh, Al Woods has been playing at the, around the 330 level for the last few years, for most of his career in the NFL, correct? Mm-hmm. Do you remember what he weighed coming out of college, coming out of LSU? No. Was it like 300 or something? On his draft profile, he was 309. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, Al Woods was 309 pounds. And, uh, you know, Cam Young's already up to 319, and we're already putting weight on Mike Morris. It's going to be interesting to see the trajectory yeah. those guys take. One other uh, change to that group since you and I talked is we knew they had, after the draft, they had to add more veterans. Uh, There was a lot of talk that maybe Shelby Harris would come back once Woods and and Ford officially signed elsewhere. Mario Edwards was the guy. And Pete has talked in pretty glowing terms about the impact uh, they think he's going to make on this team. Never been a flashy player, never more than four sacks in a season, but really, except for one injury-marred season, his second year in the league, never less than two, very consistent performer. Uh, started seven games for Tennessee last year. Your thoughts on how he fits in? I like it a lot. So last year with um, Tennessee, he he actually played like actual defensive end, like in a four down front, even if like they their spacing is weird. Like he's effectively playing like five technique, outside shoulder of the tackle. So he's an edge. Um, and he was a really good run defender. I mean, he's whatever he is, 280, 285. I mean, like yeah. he was like tackles couldn't move him. Um, what's, but then if you go the year prior, when he played with in Chicago, when, uh, Sean Desai was the defensive coordinator, who of course was there on staff with Vic Fangio, he was an interior player and he wasn't a high snap player, but he was, my opinion, he was good. Like he was, he and Eddie Goldman, like when they were all healthy, they were defending the run well along with Hakeem Hicks. Um, so he's kind of like Draymond Jones in that he's like that. He's just on the cusp weight wise, but he holds up inside fine. He can one gap, he can two gap. Um, the only question I have on that note is he feels like a Draymond mirror and mm. like Draymond Jones is on the light side for a, a, a defensive interior player, whether a three, four end or, or a, a defensive tackle in a four, three, which, you know, three tech four, it's kind of, you put it all in the same bucket. I don't know about them being on the field together at the same time that often. Mm. Um, just because I feel like you want your poundage to, to be a little bit higher than that. Like, in a perfect world, one of the ends is a 310, 315 guy, the nose is 330, and then the other guy is can be Draymond if that's his skill set. Um, but I mean, he's still a sound enough player that it's not doesn't have to be that big of a deal. And throughout his career, I don't think he's really exceeded 500 snaps that often. So I think the the what seems like is being um what what is being like hinted at is that he and Jaron Reed are just gonna be, you know, vibing in and out of the lineup, um, eat, having a vet on the first string and second string, whoever starts, whoever doesn't will kind of raise the floor. And then, and then uh, Draymond will probably be a 750 snap player. So he'll be able to help the the second string out as well. So th- they'll be able to mix and match it. So ultimately I'm, um, I'm not too worried about all that. I think he's a good player though, but what is unique about him is that because he's 285 and because he ha- can play an actual like four, three defensive end esque player, that means when they go into two, four, five, he can still give you some edge rush. Like he has an actual potent uh, uh, bull rush. So he can kind of, he can raise your floor and run defense when you want to go two, four, five, but still have width for your pass rush so you can get after the passer still. Um, and you can kind of do that with Draymond too. I don't think Draymond gives you a lot of edge rush. He gives you kind of like an inside move every once in a while. But um, this ultimately, this gives them, this helps raise their floor and base. And then it also gives them a lot of versatility and nickel, so they can kind of weave in and out of stuff. And I think that's kind of maybe what Pete is, was was hinting at. Um, he can give you interior pass rush, outside rush, then you can kind of use them all over the place, kind of like Michael Bennett. Um, not to the same level, of course, but 
he really helps them out. So I'm, I'm intrigued by that move between him, Draymond and Mike Morris. They've got three of those guys that can really weave in and out a little bit. Hmm. Um, so I'm curious to see how they use them. Let me ask you this. So just about every player we talk about in that group, there's question marks about either because they're young and we just don't know what they're going to give us or because they're coming off a bad year like Jaron Reed. And, and you were the first to show clips of him in green Bay last year and they weren't pretty. Um, and then Mario Edwards, a guy who's been a journeyman basically since being a second round pick with the Raiders uh, seven years ago. And then you have Draymond Jones, who you just said earlier in the show can be a star and a pro bowler. But injuries happen in football and the chances of, of, of being able to count on a certain group or even a certain player for 16 games, um, not likely. Is, is this group overly dependent on him staying healthy? I think so in the same way that the edge rush was overly dependent on Nwosu last year. And thankfully he just, he stayed healthy. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't think wear and tear will be a problem for Draymond because he was, a he played like 500 snaps, 500 snaps. And then last year they turned him into a full-time player, 800 snaps and his, his efficiency didn't drop. Um, and he didn't suffer like an acute injury at any point. I don't think he, he played the whole season. So, you know, barring just like a freak accident, right? You know, I, I think I think he'll be able to hold up from from that angle. Um, but it, it definitely feels like they're a little they're a little front loaded in talent. But what's fun about it is the guys that aren't meant to be stars right now, there you can see room for actual like upwards mobility. Like Mike Morris technically could be anything. Yeah. Whereas Cam Young, we know what Cam Young is. He's gonna be like a a, a honorable early down run stuff or do your job and he's going to wear that badge you know it's going to be great it's going to be right but he's not going to ever turn into he's not going to be one of those guys that turns into Fletcher Cox right but Mike right. Morris Mike Morris might be another dream on Jones like that's possible that doesn't mean it's the likeliest scenario but it's a possibility right um so that's that's kind of how I see that yeah before I let you go, I want to talk offense a little bit because the only time that you and I have ever gotten together, we've only talked defense. And um, I do want to get your thoughts on uh, Ola Olawatimi and Anthony Bradford on the offensive side. Guys that, um, you know, when they were drafted or even leading up to the draft doing mocks and things like that, some people would come at me and say they're not mobile enough. They don't fit the outside zone. They're a little bit more bigger physical players than we're used to at that spot. I actually appreciate that about it because I think we needed to get more physical at that spot. I think late in the year last year, some of the, some of the issues Gino had with interior pressure were because Austin Blythe and Gabe Jackson were just, you know, teams were picking on those guys. How do you feel about those two and and their upside? Uh, I think I like both. I think they're both eventual starters in the NFL. I, uh, for uh, Oluwatimi, um, I think he's of all the centers. I think he's might be the most balanced center that came out hmm. as in he checks the most boxes, maybe not any given box, you know, the best, like that's probably uh, uh, John Michael Schmitz or, um, or a, a Titman. Um, but I think he, uh, I think he's a balanced def- uh, center. He can, he can run block. I think he actually can handle some of the outside zone stuff. But yeah, when you go into shotgun where you don't have the ability, when you run inside zone shotgun, um, you don't have like the runway, like you have to move bodies immediately because that the running back's path is like, like hitting immediately up the gut, right? You don't get the, the running back doesn't have the time to stretch it out and then cut, right? So you need to move guys immediately. And, and I think, I think he, especially when he's um, in, in tandem with the, with the guard, he can really move bodies. And what's cool watching him is when he comes across a guy that he can't move and he knows he can't move them, how he use the angle game to at least take them out of the play a little bit. When they played Illinois, 
because the Illinois played, um, and I was watching them because one for Devin Witherspoon, right? But they also there was uh, Calvin Avery that the Seahawks had visited with, and they mm-hmm. didn't end up um, uh, taking him in undrafted free agency, or they weren't able to. I mean, he was a decent nose tackle. I mean, kind of like Robert Cooper, kind of like Cam Young. Like, yeah, he's he fits the part. Um, so they played a five man front. And the reason why I wanted to watch that game was first of all five-man front so they're more one-on-ones a lot of centers don't really block well one-on-ones even centers we consider to be good centers they they're they bring their value and their communication and how they handle angles and doubles and combos and all that so i wanted to see how we did an actual one-to-one and yeah he gets his butt kicked by the 350 pounder a couple of times but then there's some times where he actually moves the guy and then there are some times where they kind of stalemate and then he kind of wins at the last second and leverages it so where he can't work and cross face into the other gap hmm. to give his guards some help, to give his running back some help. So you kind of see that. Like, okay, he's not going to be Jason Kelsey, but he can. he's not going to be Max Unger as a run blocker, but he can be something below that and still be maybe a top 10 center in the league. Pass protection, though. I mean, this guy, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't gain, he doesn't seed ground. And again, in those one-on-ones, a lot of centers, they get like face-up contact and they're on an island and they get snatched a lot. Like like they're being bull rushed by a huge, like, like almost any nose tackle can do it to them, even if they're not explosive. They get their hands on them and then they just snatch them down to the side. He knows that's coming. Like he, he, he knows how to pass that. And they try to get under him and he's able to reshape and reestablish leverage. The couple of times where Calvin Avery tried to do it to him, he failed. So like he literally tried to snatch him, he brought him down, and then all of a team he got gets even lower and reestablishes his base and still stays square to the line of scrimmage. So as a one-on-one pass protector, I think most nose tackles he'll handle. And then when it comes to like the when he's when he's kind of um setting to like a he's part of the slide, so like a three-man slide where all three go one direction. He never he never loses like levels with his guard. Like he's always even with the guard. Mm. And then if he um he never like turns his shoulders, he's able to keep his shoulders square. So there's a really firm pocket. He just knows what he's doing. Um yeah. and there and Michigan rarely had any free blockers up the, or free rushers up the middle. So you know he's setting the protection right. Um I think I think the camp battle with him and Evan Brown will be really exciting because Evan Brown was a good center for Detroit. And I think Olavatimi probably could have been drafted in the third round if they wanted to, maybe late second. Um, in hindsight, watching more of him, I had him. I mean, and that's ended up what what, ha- what ended up what happened, right? Uh, Whipler for OSU dropped, and I was surprised by that. Yeah. Um, I went back and watched all of, more of Olavatimi. I'm like, okay, yeah, I see why now. He's he's better. This, they got the better they got the better player. Um, so I mean, I think that's a really cool pick. Um, and, and you can then, see, yeah, his, you can see, but, you you touched on this, but one of the things that stands out to me uh, with him in pass protection is you can see his wrestling background, and and that he actually applies it, and that when he knows he's up against a more physical guy, and he's and he's beat physically, whereas Austin Blythe would get knocked backwards, like literally on his butt, and we've seen that yeah. from Seattle centers too often over the last ten years. Sure you can have, see yeah. that moment with Olawatimi where he knows it, and he like. He has this way of just shooting his base out behind himself and immediately getting into a, a, a an advantageous leverage position where he's leaning into the player and it just buys mm-hmm. it just buys that extra split second in the, in the pocket. He's a very very heady player. Yeah, I, that, I think that's I think that's going to be to me the most fun camp battle of all the positions on the roster. Is can Evan Agreed. Brown hold him off? Agreed. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And then Bradford seems to be a guy that, and maybe me included, that has 
sort of snuck up as a lot of people's favorite pick out of this whole draft. Yeah, he. Uh, I think he's going to be a, a future starting guard at at, at one point. Um, I kind of like this what they're doing at, at, on, along the interior right now. It's reminiscent of what Green Bay does. Like all their starters, for the most part, especially on the inside, were like third, fourth, third, fourth, fifth round draft picks. Yeah, and then they end up starting in their second or third year, and they become their guard of the future. And then they do it again when that guy leaves in free agency. Then it's the the next guy. I feel like that's what's going on here. I think. Phil Haynes probably locks it down for this year. And then Bradford, year two, he'll be ready to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe he is good enough to warrant starting. Because to me, I mean, I view, I put him on the same level as Damian Lewis coming out of LSU, who and Lewis was ready to start year one. He wasn't a perfect player year one, but you immediately saw the talent translate yeah. uh, with, with Lewis. I think the same thing could happen with Bradford. Um, like he's explosive. He's strong. I think he has decent feet, not great feet, kind of like Lewis. Like he's 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 not quick footed per se, but he's so squatty and explosive. He can reset his feet well. Um, he is he's hard to bull rush um, in in pass protection, and he doesn't give up the outside corner very often. When he does, from what I saw, it seemed to be like a technical error, unless like he just can't handle the speed. Like some guys play with good technique and they get beat anyway because they're just outmatched, and that's yeah. really common. In, with college guards because that's the athleticism can be all over the place with them. He doesn't get beaks. He doesn't have the traits. He gets beaks. He's not being consistent with his technique and that can happen in the sec against sec defensive tackles. So, um, and then, yeah, like the, the run blocking, like the combine shows up with his run blocking. He's explosive. Like every once in a while, like he will move a guy, like lift them. Yeah. Um, but I really liked him pass protection because you see the tackle background. Like he's he almost sets like he's setting like a tackle would. He's really consistent, um, and and he doesn't panic. Like he doesn't go too fast against a guy that he knows is faster than him. He just trusts his set, trusts his technique, and usually that 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 takes care of it. Uh, it's exciting that they actually made a commitment to the trenches in this draft. We haven't seen that. Um, prior to last year now we've got back to back years and it it feels like we we were we were crying out as a fan base for them to make that commitment for years and now they finally have and it's kind of fun to watch as much as we love yeah. the skill position guys and what they can do with the ball in their hands um i think this is going to be the biggest storyline as we head through uh OTAs and into camp is what the trenches look like especially how these young guys contribute to it uh, thanks as always for your input. Always learn something when you're on here. And I know the feedback from the viewers is always that they do as well. So, uh, probably not going to see them this all come together on the field now until late July, early August. But once it does, we'll, uh, get you on here again and get your thoughts on how it's all coming together. All right. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me on. All right. And you can find Griffin Sturgeon on wherever you get your podcast on the Seattle Overload podcast with Maddie Brown. If you love X's and O's, man, that's the place to go. Uh, listen to it there and also follow him on Twitter at C Mike's Spin Move. Griffin, we'll talk to you next time, man. All right. Peace out. That's going to do it for me. Thanks again for listening to the uh, Seahawks Forever podcast. Again, if you like what we do here, hit the like button on this video and subscribe. We'd love to get to a thousand subscriptions and and go from there. And uh, as always, love your feedback. Love the comments that I get. Um, Give me your thoughts. What did you agree with? What did you like or not like about this episode? Um, Your two cents. What, uh, What do you like about this class and how you think they fit? Do you agree with what you heard today? Do you disagree? Let's get that discussion going in the comments. You can follow me on Twitter at Seahawks Forever. Imagine that. Uh, and until then, 
Uh, a couple of things coming up. Let me just tease this. Rob Staten is going to be joining me in the next couple of weeks. Kenneth Arthur of Seaside Joe is going to be joining me in the next couple of weeks as well. And uh, anytime there's breaking news or anything that needs to be reacted to, you know where to find me. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app and you'll never miss out on notifications. Until next time, thanks again for listening. I'm Dan. 